Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook. If you would like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Hey, everybody. Please welcome Brad Easton Ellis. Uh, people are afraid to merge on freeways in Los Angeles. This is the first thing I hear when I come back to the city. Blair picks me up from LAX and mutters this under her breath as her car drives up the on-ramp. She says people are afraid to merge on freeways in Los Angeles. Though that sentence shouldn't bother me, it stays in my mind for an uncomfortably long time. Nothing else seems to matter, not the fact that I'm 18 and it's December, and the ride on the plane had been rough, and the couple from Santa Barbara who were getting who were sitting across from me in first class had gotten pretty drunk. Not the mud that had splattered the legs of my jeans, which felt kind of cold and loose earlier that day at an airport in New Hampshire. Not the stain on the arm of the wrinkled, damp shirt I wear, a shirt which had looked fresh and clean this morning. Not the tear on the neck of my gray argyle vest, which seems vaguely more Eastern than before, especially next to Blair's clean, tight jeans and her pale blue t-shirt. All of this seems irrelevant next to that one sentence. It seems easier to hear that people are afraid to merge rather than, I'm pretty sure Muriel is anorexic, or the singer on the radio crying out about magnetic waves. Nothing else seems to matter to me but those ten words, not the warm winds which seem to propel the car down the empty asphalt freeway, or the faded smell of marijuana that still faintly permeates Blair's car. All it comes down to is that I'm a boy coming home for a month and meeting someone whom I haven't seen for four months, and people are afraid to merge. Um, that's all I'm going to read from that book. <laughs> And I'm not going to read anything from this book, I've decided. I don't want to read any of this book out loud. And uh, part of the reason has to do with the fact that uh, it's too painful to read out loud. When I first published this book last year, I guess it was May, I kind of went through the rounds of the press saying, oh, I wanted to write a Raymond Chandler novel, or I was interested in this aspect of revisiting Clay at a certain point, which I was. I did. Imperial Bedrooms was a book that I wanted to write because I wanted to see where Clay was. And the outline that I had for Imperial Bedrooms after I finished Lunar Park in, I guess I finished Lunar Park in the summer of 2004, and, and then that's when the idea for a sequel to Lesson Zero started to germinate. And it was going to be very different than this book. It was going to be about Blair and Clay. It was going to be about a kind of like, I don't know, a middle-aged love story. He comes back to town. He, he re-meets her. They fall back in love. But she's got a family. She's got kids. It was supposed to be a very emotional kind of love story, something I hadn't written before. And then I moved here in uh, summer of 2006 with this outline for this vaguely, oddly hopeful novel. And I began to work on a movie that I was writing and producing called The Informers. And everything began to change. And the minute that I realized that I had betrayed my closest friend on this film project. He was the one who initiated this film project with me. He wrote the script with me. He was going to direct the film. And then some problems came along with the financing and with the producers. And I went around everyone and got him killed off the project. And that's when Imperial Bedrooms began to change and began to become this book about betrayal and, be and became much, much more autobiographical than I ever, ever had, I ever wanted it to become or I had any idea it would become. It would become the thing that I would go to during the three years that I took to write this incredibly short book. It's the thing that I went to uh, and that I vented and that I, um, I guess released all of my pain into because the 
three years I'm talking about, 2006 to 2009, were the worst years of my life. And I think that's reflected in Imperial Bedrooms. But I also think that's reflected in every book that I've written, in terms of the book is a reflection of where the author is at any given time in his life. And all of my, and, and if anyone ever asked me, well, why don't you write a memoir? I, I look at the seven books and I go, well, that is the memoir in a way. That is where I was at each of those stages in my life. I was each of those male characters that narrate each of those novels. That was me. And that's kind of where I was. Um, so I don't want to read from Imperial Bedrooms, though I will read from something else if someone wants to hand me something. Uh, I'm fine with that. And I would much prefer since this is my last <laughs> bookstore appearance um, ever, <laughs> I don't know why it's so funny, because I think by the time I publish another novel, there, well, I don't know if they're going to be bookstores. That's the other thing. But, but beyond that, whoa. Um, so I, much, I would much rather just hear from you guys, and if any of you guys have questions, just to take this opportunity, whatever we have, 45 minutes, 50 minutes. Uh, if you have any questions, I don't care what the questions are. Nothing is off limits. You can ask me. And then we can start signing, and uh, I will sign all books. So whatever you have will be signed tonight. And would you like to do the arduous job of picking out people? OK. Got a question over here. Uh, should I just shout it out? You should just shout it out, and I'll repeat it to the audience. Um, my question was about your, uh, your outlining process. Um, I was wondering, in your outlining process, uh, how much work you put into uh, writing character dossiers, profiles, um, and just how much uh, play and imp and uh, and like improvisation you leave for yourself in the actual composition of the book. I'm not going to repeat that question. <laughs> it's a very long question. Did everyone kind of get it? It's about the okay, okay. The um, uh, every book comes from an outline. Every book stems from an outline. Often the outline is much longer than the book itself. And it really is a sloppy first draft, is basically what that outline is. And it incorporates all these things that I want to be in the book, but that ultimately, once I start seeing the book more clearly, will not be in the book. Um, going back to Imperial Bedrooms, there is this thing that happened that was just, I don't know, it was kind of mind-blowing in a way because I had never really come across this before. I'd come across it in American Psycho, for example, where I made a list of things that Patrick Bateman would not notice, that Patrick Bateman could not, uh, do not use metaphor, because Patrick Bateman would be, uh, is unable to see anything as something else. So there, there were a lot of notes about what Patrick Bateman's narration could be like and what would seem inauthentic to me as a character. And with Clay and Imperial Bedrooms, there was a scene, uh, one of the opening scenes, he's in a restaurant with a young actress who he's seducing, using, whatever. And um, I wanted to open the chapter on this silver wall because I, I like this restaurant and I like the way this silver wall looks that's in the back of the restaurant. And I wrote about a paragraph about the silver wall, Clay narrating, that I thought was pretty fucking brilliant and just like awesome, like really chilled out, Don DeLillo-like writing that just, I thought, oh, this is really cool. It's like a poem almost. And then I wrote the rest of the scene and I realized that, what am I talking about? Clay is never going to talk about the wall. He doesn't care about the wall. He's there to fuck with the actress. He's there to do his little thing and he would never open, he would never notice the wall. So the wall had to go. So on that level, yes, the outline changes a lot. Um, I, I stick to it pretty much. But um, again, depending on what's going on in your life, that really does affect the novels. That really does affect the fiction that I tend to write. Shana? Um, what, what are you writing now? What what I'm writing now. Um, it's interesting. Someone just asked me this the other night. What are you writing now? And I'm in between projects and I'm in kind of a limbo. And I was, uh, I looked at the things that I was doing and I was, I, I was rereading The Secret History and I was having dinner with Ryan Felipe. And then I was playing The New Angry Birds, which just, 
Angry Birds Rio on the beach. It just came out. It was, it was supposed to come out the first, and it didn't. And I've every, every morning I was checking my Angry Birds thing, Rio, and it wasn't there. And then finally it was, I think, on Monday. And I, and, and, I was, and, and I finished it in 90 minutes. I got through all, the, I got through all 15 stages. For, and so I'm in limbo. I'm in limbo right now. And I'm trying to figure out what's next. Um, I really don't have an idea for a novel. A lot of the stuff that I'm really interested in now is in small scale film and in, in long format television. That's really where I'm at now. That is, that, that, Ex uh, you know, expressing content via that is much more interesting to me right now rather than doing it in a novel. Even though I like novels, I've got hundreds of them by my bed, I read them all the time, but for me, I'm just not there at that point in my life where I'm energized by the idea of creating, of, of expressing myself through a novel. Uh, no, there wasn't. Uh, the question was, was there a work that I was most proud of yeah. having written? Um, uh, no, there wasn't. I, so people ask me all the time, like, what are your favorite books? Which one do you think is the best? Which one do you think is the worst? I just had this extremely long series of interviews done by the Paris Review, which is a very literary interview. And, you know, and, they, and, they, and the interviewer asked me that question. I hadn't really been asked it in a long time, and I realized that I don't stack up any of the books against each other like, oh, I don't think American Psycho is the best book or I don't think that um, Lunar Park is the best book or whatever. Every book is just a book that I wanted to write, that I needed to write, and that was just a reflection of where I was. It's, if you look at Amazon and you see the ratings for my books, the only book that gets four stars is The Rules of Attraction. The Rules of Attraction gets four stars. None of the other books do. I always look at that and I scratch my head and go, the rules of attraction, <laughs> that novel that you wrote when you were in college and you were in love and it was all like kind of sucky and you wrote it very quickly and it was a stream of consciousness thing and, but yet that is the book that seems to, I don't know, have some kind of humanity in it for some reason <laughs> that makes it popular, I think. And so, um, but so no, I don't have a particular book that is a favorite of mine. Each book is completely different and reflects just where I was at a given time. I'll go over here. Two quick random questions. Um, was there ever baggage in contributing your experience with the Informers movie to these characters that you've previously written? Um, and the way that, these? Yeah, uh, the, the way they were ultimately perceived as imperial veterans? And what was the origin of the Empire post-Empire theory? Okay, well, the first question was, did I feel a lot of baggage between taking this book and going here? No, there was no baggage. I think for about one minute, I thought this is a horrible idea, but I want to do it anyway. And, and, then the, uh, and then what was going on in my life overrode any idea of whether it was a great idea, a bad idea. I had to do it. I just had to write this book. And this book, for better or worse, really is like three years of my life compressed into three weeks. And it was. I mean, if I looked at this book now, which I, I kind of can't do, the paranoia, the fear, the menace, the betrayal of the friend, uh, the affair with the actress who, whatever, all of the elements happened basically. I used my apartment building. I use everything that was in my life is in this book. And that was something that I didn't talk about at first last year in May or June or April when I started doing these interviews. I just didn't want to go there. And so I, I, I kind of deflected the questions by talking about influences and uh, how interesting it is to see it 25 years later, when in reality I was writing about an incredibly painful part of my life that I just didn't really want to talk about. And then sometime during the European tour of last year, the French broke me down. <laughs> the French broke me down. I was, I literally, I was in France for like uh, three weeks and with doing literally hundreds of interviews and they broke me down. And I don't know if it was kind of the language barrier or, what, or if I was just so exhausted and then I said, yes, it's me, it's all about me. My God, what have I been hiding all, you know, for all these months? This book was about myself. But I did not feel any baggage about like worrying, oh, are people gonna feel betrayed by 
ultimately the bleakness, the sheer bleakness of this book compared to the semi, you know, Clay gets out, you know. There, there is some kind of hope at the end of Less Than Zero with those three words after I left, which were three words that I argued with my editor about a lot because I kind of didn't want them there. And I thought, would it, how different would the ending of Less Than Zero be if after I left wasn't there and we just ended on that and Clay was stuck in LA, so that was something. Empire post-Empire is something that I have been greatly ridiculed about. A lot of people are sick of hearing about it because because unlike most of you, my friends have been hearing about this for two years, and they don't want to hear about it anymore. And if I bring up, oh, that's very post-Empire, God, that's so Empire, um, I'm told to shut up a lot of the time. <laughs> but, and so what happened um, about a month, a month and a half ago, I got, I got a call from Tina Brown, who does the Daily Beast, and also took over Newsweek, and she called me up, and uh, we have a long, long history of her asking me to do things that I always say no to. Uh, we worked very hard in the late 90s um, when she was at the New Yorker trying to get me to do a piece on Axl Rose, who was not talking to anybody, not hiding up in the hills. And um, Axel approved me to do the piece, and then it became this endless negotiation of what could be asked, what could be asked. So we've, and she called me up. So I have had this long history with her, and so she called me up and said, okay, will you write a piece about Charlie Sheen? Uh, what's going on right now with Charlie Sheen? And we're gonna put it on the Daily Beast, and we need it in like two days. And it's like, oh, this is, I never written a piece for online before. This is good, so you, really two days, two or three days. And he said, yeah, yeah, we need it very quickly. And so I said, you know what? Charlie Sheen is an interesting uh, example of what I think is going on in this transitional phase from empire into post-empire. Um, and so I said, yes, I'll do it. And I just, it just kind of flew out of me, these 4,000 words. And if I had known that it was going to be as widely read as it was going to be, I would have taken a lot more time with it. I would have clarified a little bit more what I meant by empire, post-empire, though I think it's pretty clear to anyone who reads it that they can kind of like glean what it means. Was that the first time you used those words in an online? Uh, like no, I use it a lot on my Twitter account. My Twitter. In an article? Uh, no, 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 no. It was the second time I was using Empire Post Empire in an article. The first time I defined it was in my defense of Jersey Shore in the January Playboy. <laughs> That's not a joke. That really happened. No, I'm kidding. It's, it's what I'm, but um, so yeah, so that, and actually in Playboy they asked me to define it, and it is defined in that article what I mean by you know 1945 to 9/11, and then blah 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 blah. It's just a personal you know thing. It doesn't. You can reject it. It's fine. It's and it's not a judgment. Like Empire things are great. And post-Empire things are kind of shitty, but there's some very cool post-Empire stuff that's going on. And I just think the post-Empire stuff that's going on in terms of transparency, which is basically what it is, is very interesting compared to the guardedness of empire society and the secretiveness of it and the posing. The, the, the pose doesn't work really anymore. You can't really sustain the pose. And that's what I find very interesting about post-Empire. Question over here. Well, that answered my post-empire question, but I had another one talking about your time in France. Do you actually speak French? And if so, could you tell me what Bertrand's section of Rules of Attraction is about? Because I've never gotten a friend to translate that for Okay. Um, no, I don't speak any French. Ah. Um, and I, uh, no. I, I don't want to. I really I don't want to speak French. <laughs> Um, okay, the Bertrand section in Rules of Attraction. Since I don't speak French, and I was in a very playful mood while I was writing Rules of Attraction, there are many things in that book that are, um, I don't know, there's like a, there's a blank page, you know? There's a f page in French. Clay appears, you know? It's like, it was, just a, it was a very playful book, and I was reading Ulysses at the time, and I was, re I, I loved the idea of stream of consciousness, and I also liked the idea that what is reality, what is reality? What is illusion? You know, I was taking classes like that, and you know, everyone was telling their own stories, and they don't really add up. Um, so when I got to the Bertrand section, um, and I did have a French roommate, 
I had a French roommate at uh, Bennington, and if you, anyone has seen the film version of the Rules of Attraction, there's a scene between James Vanderbeek and the French roommate that is right on target. <laughs> I don't know if anyone remembers the scene. It's the two of them waking up one morning, and uh, it's... Watch the movie. It's, it's actually a good movie. I asked someone to translate what I had written because I didn't speak French and I and I, you know, I paid them something for it. And I have heard from many French people that the translation is terrible. That it makes really not. That was a really badly translated thing. Question over here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, something you might have heard a lot, I think, about Lesson Zero, is like, I read Lesson Zero in class, and I've also read John Gideon's Play of the Plays. And I'm wondering, like, you also said in class, just how basically the people in Lesson Zero are the parents of the, the people in Lesson Zero. And also, even like in Lesson Zero, it's also printed on the back that, oh, Britney and Ellis is like the child of Joan Gideon, and that's got this Gerald and Hemingway. And I'm wondering, like, if like you actually feel like you inherited anything from those authors, or if you actually rebel from those authors? I ripped them off. <laughs> I totally ripped them off. I ripped off Joan Didion. Joan Didion was a huge influence, and without Play It As It Lays, Less Than Zero wouldn't really exist. Though I would go even further back into Slouching Towards Bethlehem and the main essay of that book, Slouching Towards Bethlehem, which had a huge impact on me too, stylistically. And then Play It As It Lays kind of confirmed it. And also at that time, you know, it, it's true, I hate to say it, it's like somewhere on the back of this old version of Lesson Zero, it's like the novel of MTV or whatever. And I remember like watching MTV while kind of working on this and, you know, finishing a scene by the time a song ended and, you know, just whatever. So, um, but, but Joan Didion, huge influence, Fitzgerald a little less so, though I wish he had been more of when I was, when I was younger because it was basically Hemingway and it was Joan Didion, and it was, at a certain point in my life, it was Ulyss It was James Joyce, who then I later uh, recanted, and then it was... And then you, you don't need a lot of influences, really. You only need, like, a couple and to get you started. You don't need, like, 20. So, but I... Um, the, all of those writers that you mentioned, I loved, and they all had a huge influence on me, and I agree. Yes, the children in Lesson Zero seem to be, if, if you know, if any of the characters in Play As It Lays, which I don't think any of them do have children, except Mariah, who is, you know, in, uh, in an institution, so. Oh. Oh, hi, thank you. Uh, I was curious to know whether you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert. Um, 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 I guess a little bit of both. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, increasingly, the more you the more you see of the world, and the more people you meet, and the more you understand how the world works, the more I become an introvert, and the more I want to stay away from everybody. <laughs> So I, find, I have found that happening to me lately, that I am introverting now into like a place that I used to be much more of an extrovert about. Um, but I always was kind of a private person on a certain level. I certainly am not like a year-round guy who goes and does these, goes to every you know book festival, does five readings a year, publishes a book every year. I do this really infrequently, like every five years, every six years or something, I'll come out and I'll do this. Um, so I don't get, this is not a particularly comfortable thing for me to do, but you know, you, you do it because they call and they say you have to do at least one, at least one, you have to do at least one. Um, but, but actually in my real life, my real life, yes, I am, yeah, I mean, I'm, I like to have fun. I was always like, you know, Someone wanted to go to parties and stuff like that, so I guess kind of an extrovert too. But the older I'm getting, I'm becoming more of an introvert. Over here. Um, you've had quite a few of your books made into movies. How was that process for you? Because I know a lot of people know that's happened and they feel tortured by it and Um, the question was about movies, the movies that have been made. Um, um, 
you don't have to sell your books to the movies at all. And if you sell your books to the movies um, and then you start complaining about it, uh, my, you know, I don't know, what can I, what can I, what, what can I do? I did that, though. <laughs> I did do that. So, but now I've stopped. I, I've stopped doing it. Um, you know, it's, uh, uh, you don't, you know, you don't have to do it. You don't have to do it. And, uh, but the, th the problem is, and the promise is, that there is a lot of money. And um, so you take the money knowing that the odds are 98% of all literary properties that are optioned or bought are never made and only 2% are. So you can kind of weigh it like, well, God, that's, kind of, that's great. I'm getting the money. They're not going to turn my movie into a piece of trash, which actually does hurt sales of books. I was just on the phone with my agent who also represents Cormac McCarthy. And I'm trying to do this deal right now with HBO to turn The Secret History into a, a miniseries, which is... an the the deal making on that is so impossible to even start unwinding that it's like and we were talking today she you know and Donna Tart has been very very hesitant about ever letting this book be made into a movie it went through development hell at Warner Brothers for about 10 years I read a lot of those scripts in the 90s. They were all awful. Um, part of the problem being that you cannot condense that book into an hour and 15 minute movie. It just doesn't work. And everyone tried to. And so it just become this expository, boring movie of everyone talking about some. But um, but, she, but Binky Urban, our agent, was talking about how All the Pretty Horses, the Cormac McCarthy book that was turned into a kind of a really bad movie that came out, I don't know when, actually hurt sales of the book. The book sales dived and didn't really recover until people forgot about the movie and another Cormac book came out. Um, so, uh, so you have that option not to sell your book to a movie. In my case, yeah, when I was 21 or 22, they wanted to turn Lesson Zero into a movie. They turned it into a movie. Uh, I was excited by the idea that they, they turned it into a movie. I've said this many, many times. There is not a single line of dialogue or a single scene from the book that is in the movie. It is a completely different thing. I thought that was kind of cool for about an hour and 10 minutes watching it the first time in a screening room. And then by about an hour and 20 minutes, I got a little dismayed. And I said, they've got to use something. They have to use something. And they use nothing. They use nothing. And I talk about that a bit in the opening of uh, Imperial Bedrooms, my reaction to that movie. Uh, along the lines, American Psycho, did it really need to be made? No, it was, uh, uh, it was conceived as something literary. It wasn't conceived as something cinematic. It was conceived as something that you read and you have questions about. And what movies do is they literalize everything. So actually, American Psycho, the movie, does not become a meditation on identity, self, uh, uh, you know, the inner workings of your average dude, by the way. I, I, you know, that's, American Psycho is very much about me. And I, I, I said this last time I was, when I was, uh, you know, uh, talking about Imperial Bedrooms, how autobiographical American Psycho was. In a lot of ways, my most autobiographical book. It was about where I was in my life during those. Um, so, um, so American Psycho really shouldn't have been made. I mean, it's well made, but it really just becomes a movie about Christian Bale, who seems super crazy, running around in a tuxedo, like chasing hookers with chainsaws. <laughs> which I don't think was in the book. Which I don't think was in the book. And then, of course, um, and I love The Rules of Attraction. Anyone who hasn't seen that uh, terrific movie by Roger Avery uh, caught the spirit of the book, got it, uh, translated it from one medium into another uh, in a very playful, funny, cinematic way. I thought it really, really worked. A lot of, a lot of it is out. A lot of the book is not in that movie. Um, but I like that movie the best. I am... You know, look, The Informers is a movie that I worked very long and very hard on. And it turned out to be the worst, by far, of the movies that have been made of my books. Um, it was a great script. I'm going to say that right now, because we got a ton of money, and we got a ton of actors who wanted to be in it. And somewhere along the way, an accident was made with a director and with a producer who just didn't get the material. Promised that they got the material, convinced us that they got the material, and then they start shooting. You start shooting the movie and you go, well that's supposed to be funny. That's supposed to be funny. He's supposed to be saying that line funny. And then the director's going, oh, we'll fix it in post, we'll fix it in post, we'll fix it. <laughs> and then it's like, 
and, or the music, the score will help, the score will help. And then by the time you see the rough cut, it's like, what in the hell happened? I mean, what in the hell happened? How are we going to fix this? And it was a year of, a year of post-production of me writing scenes, new scenes, to try to fix the damage that had been um, caused, that, which they shot. They shot these, all these new scenes to try to fix the movie. Terrible scenes that I wrote. Um, and then I did a voiceover. We worked for months on a voiceover to like clarify things that they just left out of the script or they cut out of the movie. And um, and and I have to take some of the fall for that. I do because I was working in tandem with them. I really wanted that movie made. It was something very personal to me. And this is a very long answer to a very short question. What did I think about the movies? The movies, I don't know. That's that's all I have to say about the movies. You don't have to you don't have to sell the movies. You don't have to sell the books to become movies. Over here? Yes. I was just wondering um, why this is a really cliche question, but I was just wondering why you write. Is it something that you feel like you need to do for yourself? Or yes. No, it, it's something that I started doing when I was a kid. I don't know why. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I loved books and I read a lot of books, and because books gave me so much pleasure. I wanted to mimic that pleasure by writing my own books in a way. Um, every book I write is for me. I'm not, I'm not really thinking about an audience. My publishers wish I was, so I would be publishing more frequently than I do. But I can't write a book unless I'm feeling it, and I can't write a book unless something's going on in my life that I'm connecting with. And just for me, I'm not a musician. You know, I'm not a musician, so I'm not making a record, and I'm not recording music or whatever. I'm writing books. That, that for me, for, for about 25 years was the way that I could express myself, that I could deal with the pain, you know, the pain of whatever I was going through. And that's where the books come from. They come from pain. They come from a source of, like, uh, um, intense pain. And so it's, it's not an abstract thing at all. It's a very, very cathartic thing for me. I, like you, I'm a huge Hills fan, and I was wondering what you're doing now that Hills have been cancelled. <laughs> Uh, Jersey Shore doesn't really cut it. <laughs> doesn't cut it, though I like it. Um, yeah, The Hills, getting ridiculed for The Hills. Watch reality TV now and look at The Hills. I mean, it looks like it was shot by Kubrick. <laughs> I mean, really, the elegance of The Hills will never, they'll never be able to make a show like that again. They will never, that was, that was shot in a period where reality TV had not turned yet into what it was. And it was, they still wanted to reinforce this uh, air of kind of drama and uh, I don't want to say fakery, but there was something about the hills that is lost. It's not going to come back. And it is a great show. It is a very despairing show about L.A. singles life. It is a Jane Austen novel rewritten for Audie's L.A. It's about four girls trying to find nice boys. They can't. Everyone's a cad. The girls are miserable. Uh, Lauren Conrad uh, is uh, has, has made a lot of wrong mistakes about reading her friends correctly. And she's, she, she's a very flawed character. She's a very flawed character. You know? Uh, I love that show. <laughs> I do. I, I, I don't, look, I don't put it up with, you know, whatever, The Sopranos or The Wire or Mad Men, but it's kind of in my top ten. It definitely is. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Didn't like the city, though. I bet no one in here even knows what the city is. Do you? It was Whitney in New York, yeah. It didn't work. And you know what? Season seven, uh, once Lauren Conrad walked out of the hills, the hills stopped working. The hills needed to end the moment of Heidi and Spencer's wedding when she, when Lauren Conrad said her fake apology to Heidi left that church, walked to some weird black car waiting for her, <laughs> got into the black car, drove off, and then Kristen Cavavari ran into, comes into, looms into view. And then we're in like Mulholland Drive. <laughs> we're like in some Lynchian world, and that's when the show should have ended. On Kristen Cavavari looking over as Lauren Conrad's limo pulls off, and then we do one of those stunningly beautiful aerial shots of LA that the hills is is just studded with that's just beautiful. I love the hills. I love the hills. I love it. Over here, yeah. 
Yeah. What's your sign? Pisces. Uh, Pisces. And uh, I, I answer that with absolutely no hesitation because I was raised in a family that was obsessed with astrology. I was not, I'm not really that into astrology, but my family was very into astrology. My sister has a huge astrology site called, what is it called? Addictedtoastrology.com. <laughs> yeah, and it's like uh, people I know who are into astrology love it. I think it's great. So, um, so I know a lot about it without really not sure if I'm, you know, should I be with a Scorpio? Do I really need to? Do I get along with Cancers? I don't know. I don't know. Over here, then over here. Yeah. Hi. Um, I know in the past um, a lot of angry ladies have been uh, able to do massages. Yes. And uh, yeah, just due to the patriarchal violence directed at women. Yes. No, it has not affected my uh, writing going forward. I there are elements of me that are, I think, misogynistic. I think there are, and I don't, and and homophobic, and racist, and whatever. I mean, there's just these elements within me that that are part of who I am. And you know, someone asked me, "Are you? Do you consider yourself a misogynist?" And I said, "I really don't care if I'm a misogynist. What does that even mean? Does it make me less interesting as an artist? Does it make me less interesting as someone who wants to create novels?" Um, the misogyny bag I got with American Psycho it kind of never left. Um, even though I would say, looking out at this crowd now, there are just as many women in this audience than there were in 1994 when I did my first tiny little informers tour where it was m basically m mostly men. And I think the shift has... Uh, the, the American Psycho might have been about a misogynist, but I never saw it as a misogynistic book. And that is kind of... Uh, the misreading of the book was that it was written by a misogynist for misogynists, and it was about a misogynist. <laughs> but look at I have I, look at I have I have had problems with women before, and um, I look I got to be honest. M misogyny came out. I had some hatred for women. I I got very uh, got very upset at a couple of female executives that I was working for who insisted that all the characters in this pilot I wrote, all these male characters have, you know, not one but two vaginas, you know, everything had to be pared down through <laughs> through through this prism of and, and so I did I I, get, I went on this misogynistic rant for a couple of years and uh, I I guess I'm I don't know I guess I'm kind of over it but it never affected the work and it never affected I always thought that my female characters were far more sympathetic than my male characters I thought I really took my male characters to task and I you know, was more or less easier on the female characters. And I guess you could say that that balance probably occurred because of the dynamics that I saw in my family growing up, where I had an incredibly violent father and a semi-submissive mother, and that kind of relationship, I think, helped. It fucked me up, yeah, it fucked me up. And that, that's not the only thing that fucked me up. But that was like in the top, top two or three, yes. <laughs> Um, the process between writing books and writing TV and movies, um, books are about style, scripts aren't. Uh, a, a TV script or a movie script isn't about style. You just plainly, directly tell the story and you don't really have, I think, uh, and you don't really have to worry about how it's worded or you just want it to read cleanly and you just want to make sure everyone gets what's going on and that it's all blocked out and you can follow the story and <clears throat> the dialogue makes some kind of sense. Novels to me are about sensibility and about a temperament, and they're about style. Um, every story has been told like a thousand times. It's how it's told in novels that I think is what makes a novel so compelling. And if the style isn't there, if that like beat isn't there, that like I don't know, that heartbeat isn't there in a novel stylistically, then I'm then I don't care what the story is. I'm just kind of not there. So the diff the difference really is just. One of one of style. A book depend is dependent. The success of a book is dependent on its style, and really, the success of a screenplay is more or less dependent on how you told the story and have you told that story well, and are those characters interesting? 
have two questions. They're short. First of all, um, I was curious what music you listen to. Um, I guess while you're writing, mostly because of what you're listening to right now. And also, where are your favorite places to go in LA? <laughs> and, and the bathroom, too. <laughs> Um, okay, favorite music, I like the national, I'm old, so I'm like, uh, what have I liked recently? Gaslight Anthem? Uh, the first record. No, 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 uh, the, the 59 Cent, the other one, American Slang, just didn't do it for me. So did I miss out? Should I have listened to it again? Yeah, it really is, it gets better? Okay. Um, I w w just who said CeeLo Green? I was listening to the CeeLo Green, yeah, the CeeLo Green. How lame! I mean, what am I talking about, CeeLo Green? <laughs> but I was listening to something that I I really liked a lot. Oh, Jamie Johnson, this country guy. Anybody? No, doesn't. Okay, Jamie Johnson. I loved the last record, and um, I, that's Robin. <laughs> Dancing, yeah, Dancing on My Own was like such a good song. That's like an awesome song. Yeah. Place to go? Oh, places to go. Um, you know, really, uh, nowhere. <laughs> nowhere. Got a question over here? So over the last few months online, it's kind of been like, will Brett write another book? There's been you saying that you won't write another novel and you'll just focus on TV and movies. Do you need your heart broken until you write another novel, or are you saying you never will again? What's your future with the novel? Um, hmm. Well, I guess, you know, you're right about some of those things. Yes, you, uh, you have to be moved by something, I think, to write a novel. Um, I'm more moved by stories and how to, and that's, that's actually not even true for the scripts. I mean, I, the scripts and the things that I'm working on are very personal. I mean, I'm not doing like, I'm not doing polishing rewrites at studios or anything. I mean, I'm making, trying to make these small independent films that I'm a writer on and a producer on, and that mean a lot to me. For example, The Golden Suicides, this Jeremy Blake, Teresa Duncan movie that's been going through a lot of like problems, um, means a lot to me. I want to get that made. And there's a couple of other projects as well. Well, so um, it's not necessarily, and I'm feeling those. I mean, I'm actually feeling those things. They don't. They mean something to me. I don't know. In terms of a novel, I'm just. I. I don't write at this point. I'm not there yet, and I have nothing kind of outlined. I, I don't. I'm, I'm not really thinking about it on a daily basis. So every now and then, I'll read like a really good contemporary American novel, and I go, "Damn, why am I not doing that? Why can't I? You know, why can't I do that?" I don't rule it out totally, no. But um, I'm not right. Honestly, right there, right now, I'm I'm not there yet. Question over here. Do you think the internet is making people lonelier? Just as like a whole, like as, as you as a writer, do you feel like the more even like Twitter, do you feel like you hear responses and it shuts you down in a way? Like, like even like when you said, where would you like to go? You said nowhere. Like. That couldn't have been the case 10 years ago. Do you think that Twitter... Oh, it was the case 10 years ago. It was the case. Uh, you know what? It's strange you ask me that. I've always felt lonely. I've always felt like out of the crowd for some reason. I think the internet like cements that further. Uh, Do you think that you would have been able to write the novels that you had written maybe in the 80s and 90s if our Twitter and no, Facebook culture no, existed No, today? no. I don't think so. Because I don't think... Instant gratification. Right. I think I would have been blogging most of what I was doing rather than actually sitting down and creating a novel. Yes, I would have been expressing myself that way. Um, so, but in terms of loneliness, uh, I don't know. I kind of like, well, that's not true. I mean, I get on Facebook and I, then I get incredibly depressed and then I get off Facebook. So <laughs> Facebook does make me feel very lonely and I have like 8,000 friends. So it's like, um, and, uh, but, um, but, uh, no, I've always felt kind of lonely ever since I was a kid. Like just wanting to be a writer, I, I can't explain it. I always felt like I was alienated from people, and so I got used to the loneliness. And I also think, as a writer, being lonely 
I don't know, it's good for you, you know, in a way. You know, being, you're alone a lot and you get used to it. So I don't really necessarily have that problem. I do think that the internet has like, of course, let's all stay it together, has screwed up our attention spans and makes it more difficult to concentrate on long form things. And yeah, that, that might be a problem, but I don't know how much of a problem it is. You know, you go see the Harry Potter movies that are two hours and 40 minutes long and you have five-year-olds sitting there watching them. You know, it's not, it's not like, I, I don't know how how, uh, uh, I don't know, but no, I'm not lonely. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, the internet and uh, Facebook don't make me lonely. <laughs> Did I say that? Is that a quote? <laughs> we'll go over here and then over here. Is there a question here? Uh, yeah, in the back. Uh, have you found your girl? <laughs> have I found the girl? Your girl. My girl. Yes, I have. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, you just mentioned this, and uh, I read this like months ago that the Teresa and Jeremy film was coming out, and you're working on like, Gus Van Sant or something. Is that what's can you update us on that? Uh, the question's about the Jeremy Blake, Teresa Duncan movie that I was supposed to, that Gus Van Sant was supposed to direct. Gus Van Sant was never attached to direct the movie. He was very interested in directing the movie and circled the project for about a year and then decided, you know what, I don't want to do this movie. Fine, it happens all the time, let's find someone else. Um, and then suddenly, out of the blue, a French filmmaker who wants to make his first American movie named Gaspar Noé, who did a movie called Irreversible, and I think a great movie called Enter the Void, yeah. which is just mind-blowing, uh, had been tracking the project and said, oh, I, I want to do it. So. We're now in talks with him doing it, and then leading to that is that not is the fact that like Ryan Gosling had been following the project too, and Gaspar Noé is Ryan's favorite director, and he badly wants to play Jeremy Blake, and so this whole weird thing came together with Gus leaving. So as of now, that is where that project is, and I have no idea. And you know, anything can happen. It can fall apart in two days, or it could come together in a month. So. Any question uh, I'm just curious about your thoughts on I'm Still Here, the Joaquin Phoenix mockumentary, which you called uh, the best movie of last year on your Twitter. No, I call the best, he was asking me about I'm Still Here, um, which he said that I called the best movie of the year on my, twi on my Twitter account. Actually, Toy Story 3 was my favorite movie last year. And then I'm Still Here was number two. Um, I loved I'm Still Here. I loved it. And I thought it was a much more honest kind of movie than the Banksy film, which I felt was kind of a stunt that kind of seemed much more obvious and prankish than, I, it, it didn't kind of work for me. I, it was trying to make too many points. And I felt there was something very emotional and naked and revealing about Joaquin's journey in I'm Still Here that was just fearless and remarkable and hilarious and I, it kind of blew my mind. I mean, I thought, and I thought it was hilarious. I, I love that film. So I'm still here in, man, Toy Story 3. Those were, those were my favorite movies of last year. Yeah. I was just wondering what you thought about Glee. You talking about that? I'm talking about Glee. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I like the idea of Glee. It's, it's a show about high school kids who sing and dance. That's fine. I have no problems with that. I wrote a high school musical many, many years ago. I wrote a high school musical with rock numbers in it and kids singing and dancing and whatever. I like the idea of it. I like it, I like it. I even like the high school musical movies. Not that much, but I like them enough. I, I, I like them. I, so I'm a fan of the genre. I really am. 
I'm not against Chris Colfer. I'm not against Darren Chris. I'm not against that cast at all. I think they're all fine. They're all singing and dancing, and they're running down hallways. They're belting out Broadway songs they would have never heard of in their entire lives, but the 40-year-old gay executives and writers are putting these songs into their mouths and whatever. <laughs> I do have an issue with the way the mainstream media press has praised Glee as an example of positive role models for homosexual youth, which I do not think it is. And that is my problem with Glee. And it is not, I am not pro-bullying. I am not, I, my assistant of 10 years is HIV positive. I am not, and makes the nastiest HIV jokes possible. Uh, you know, I was thinking about the first scene in Team America, where all the puppets are on stage singing, we've got AIDS, we've got it. <laughs> or Sarah Silverman saying every time, telling her, her niece, every time you hear a bell rings, it means an angel gets AIDS. You know, it's sort of like, it's like not to be able to use that in comparison, in, in, in contrast to Glee, using the term that I use, watching Glee is like stepping into a, a puddle of HIV or whatever I said it was, was, you know, the contrast between a puddle of HIV and Glee is, you know, funny, I thought, funny. Many people found offensive. Um, a lot of gay people kind of agreed with me that this stereotypical notion of gay, gay youth and it being so, you know, widely embraced by the mainstream press was the problem. And that, and Glee itself is fairly innocuous and it's, you know, not a problem. And, you know, I was in a bad mood that week and I, and I had about three mean Glee tweets and I just didn't know that they were going to, you know, cause that much problems until I, just, I, I found myself every morning on Perez Hilton with like a big like boo drawn over my face. <laughs> oh, we'll go over here. Um, yeah, I guess I am. I guess I am, yeah. I learned, a, I mean, look, at that time, it's, it's a really interesting question because part of what American Psycho was about was the dandification of American men. It, I think it's like the first metrosexual novel in a way where it, we had hit a point in the culture where uh, heterosexual men were now adopting gay men's grooming routines and whatever, and um, and becoming, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to say feminized in any way, but they became overly concerned about whatever their skin, their suits, their bodies, their whatever, and it was an interesting cultural moment, um, and I think that was something that was because that was going on that was pushed into American Psycho. So it's a, it's, it's a totally valid question. I wanted to ask, what was your opinion of the whole May 21st just for date fiasco? The May 21st what? <laughs> judgment date fiasco. The May 21st judgment day fiasco. Saturday the one Oh, um... Uh, you mean last Saturday? <laughs> this Saturday. Oh, it is supposed to be the rapture. I haven't been following. I haven't been following. I haven't been following. I don't know. Over here. Can you talk a little bit about New York and how you feel about the city, like being an empire city as opposed to LA being post Um, Personal. It's very personal. I wanted to get out of LA very badly as a kid. None of my other friends did. All of my friends stayed here. They went to college here. They went to USC. They went to UCLA. Whatever. Uh, I wanted out. I did not. I wanted to go to New York. Uh, I guess maybe because that's where a lot of my literary heroes were. That's where publishing was. I knew I wanted to get into books. Um, I wanted, you know, I, I wanted to write. Um, so getting to that college in Vermont was the stepping stone to getting to New York, and also to get as far away from my family as possible. To
to get as far away from my family as possible was the main uh, another main reason why I wanted to get to get to New York. Uh, and so yeah, and I lived in New York for a long time, and it was really really great. You know, it was uh, of course I had my problems, but I wrote American Psycho there, and I worked on another book, Glamorama, there during during that period. And um, but then things happen, like the party ends. You know, for at, at a certain moment, uh, my best friend died out of the blue. It kind of like really was upsetting and I just was finding myself not that interested secondly, a far second. I was not interested in the publishing world and was not interested in the minutia of writers, book festivals, uh, gossip about advances other writers were getting. It was a very, very small world that I was not interested in, and it seemed to me that all of my friends were like a part of this group. That was another reason to leave, and um, I don't know, I, I guess I thought I, Somewhere in the back of my mind, I, I guess I thought I was always going to come back to California for some reason. But yeah, so on a personal level, yeah, I do see New York as being emblematic of the empire, and I do see and I do see Los Angeles as being um, a much more globalized city, a much more forward-thinking city, much you know, a more post-empire city in, in that regard. But again, I would say that's a personal, personal, personal thing. We have one, time for one last question, and it goes to you. I'm wondering if you uh, think of the shift, uh, if Los Angeles is growing on New York as a, a place for writers and writing. If Los Angeles is... around on New York as a place for writers and writing. I don't know. I don't know. I really don't. I, I, I don't... I don't know if I pay that much of attention of attention, probably not. I don't really want to end it on that down or not. I, I don't want to, I mean, there's someone over there has a question. Why don't we just, why don't we just, we'll do it, we'll do like a rapid round. Where we'll just do, because there's one, two, three, people have questions, so we'll have these three questions. Who wants to go first? And I'll just answer them very, very quickly and we'll, and we'll get this up. Alright, oh, well, okay, you raise your hand a little bit. Okay, let's just do this quick. There's five, and and it's and, and they're going to be short answers. So, okay, first hand over there. I can't see your face. There, say it. Ask the question. Quick. What inspired Glamorama? Okay, next. Who's in one? <laughs> uh, what inspired Glamorama was the fact that my father. Uh, the idea of Glamorama was about a father who wanted to replace his son and with a better son. So he and that's where Glamorama started. Okay, next one. White book. White book. Oh, um, what? Uh, Jonathan Franzen. <laughs> we'll go over here. Um, did you think most of the time the uh, veterans kind of negated Less Than Zero in the way that they called Less Than Zero, but that Clay wasn't even, Clay wasn't real in Less Than Zero? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> was Dorcia natural restaurant? No. And um, probably the fact that they believed that I would be much more protected in a private school than I would be in a public school. That moving me out of a public school into a place filled with rich, decadent kids who snorted lines before class was a better place for me to be. <laughs> this is the narcissism of my parents' generation. Their narcissism was what really did it. Okay, and then there's one last. I don't want to end it on that either. But <laughs> where, where were you then when you found out that Lesson Zero was being published, and how did that feel? All right, we're going to end this on this because this is a happy question. <laughs> a happy question. There's not going to be any applause or anything. Where was I when I found out? I was in my dorm room at Bennington. This was in April of 1984. Uh, there had been many phone calls and messages left under my door. There were no cell phones. You had one phone in the dorm. You put quarters into. You put quarters into. So, 
I said, oh, th these are the people who are going to be deciding whether this book is going to be published. You've got to call this guy. And so I picked up, it was about, it was before dinner. I, it was on a Friday. I remember calling the number. It was at Simon and & Schuster. And it was my ed uh, it was my editor, uh, the guy who had been trying to push Lesson Zero through the company because the company, the old people of the company didn't want to publish the book. The young editors did, the old guard didn't get it. And so he said, we're going to publish your book. And I said, okay, that's cool. And not really knowing the immensity of what that was and how that was going to change everything forever. But I remember that moment so clearly. I remember the light. I remember being in that little phone booth in that house. And um, it was a conversation that lasted about maybe a minute and 30 seconds. And he said, I'll get back to you on Monday. The deals are being sorted out. And then I went up to dinner up in the dining hall. And I told all of my friends that this happened. Half of them didn't believe me and half of them I lost as friends because they were writers too. Oh, I ended on a down note anyway. <laughs> I ended on a down note anyway. Uh, um, well, thank you guys for showing up for this. I am going to sign books, whatever books you have. Where am I going to be signing them? Right here, I'm, I'll explain the whole situation. What I'm going to do is I'm going to move all this stuff out of the way. I'm going to bring a table right over here where he can sit and sign away. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.